Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Uh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personally. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Special Edition oeuvre and this is the first episode of uh, our new director filmmaker that we're putting on a pedestal here one mr john mctiernan we've we've done one series of oeuvre with steven spielberg and you know i think we thought it was time for a less obvious choice matt uh do you want to get into a little bit sort of our or thinking about how we uh, came to select Mr. McTiernan? I think there's a lot of things at play here. It probably seems a little bit annoying that we move straight from a heterosexual white American male who is probably best known for sort of coming of age creatively in the 1980s. It might seem like a bit of a lateral move from Steven Spielberg. In future entries into this series, we will obviously try and explore perhaps a little more diversity and getting to non-American filmmakers, of course. I wanted to move from Spielberg to someone who had a more manageable oeuvre. Yeah. I wanted to do a series where we could we could bang out their oeuvre a little faster. didn't have quite the breadth of material to deal with. So I kind of want to do something a little shorter than the, you know, two-year Spielberg journey. But I also wanted to try and celebrate someone who I feel doesn't get the credit they deserve. And I really feel like McTiernan deserves to be in the conversation for the most influential filmmakers of the 1980s. And while he has a couple of films that came out in the late 1980s that I think everybody can agree are incredibly influential genre exercises, I don't think we talk about him the same way we just talk about Predator and Die Hard. And I really wanted to celebrate the man and his work and what makes him so special and why his films are so influential and what what's so specific to him that can't really be recreated in all the knockoffs. I mean, he made two films in the late 1980s that I feel have been recreated ad nauseum for the last 35 years, and I don't think they've ever really been bested. You know, like we'll try to keep this from just being the Predator and Die Hard show because there is more to talk about than just those two films. But for the last 30 plus years, uh, Hollywood has been trying to remake those movies in various iterations. And I don't think they ever have successfully. 
right? I mean, I yes. think the only person who ever successfully recreated the Die Hard formula was McTiernan when he did Die Hard with a Vengeance. And we can get <laughs> deep into that in the next episode. But I mean, the the cliche coming out of the, you know, after Die Hard came out in 1988 was from then on, everybody was trying to chase Die Hard on a blank, Die Hard on a blank, Die Hard on a bus, Die Hard in a tornado, Die Hard on a ship, Die Hard, you know, in a hockey rink. And I, to me, the only really successful one, I mean, Speed is, is successful in its own way, and that was actually directed by the cinematographer of Die Hard. But to me, the most successful Die Hard on a blank is Die Hard in a New York which is a yes. movie that Jim McTiernan made himself. But again, I can I can get into my uh, affection for that film in our next episode. The way I see this is John McTiernan and Steven Spielberg are in a way kind of polar opposites. Steven Spielberg, probably our most famous director of all time, the biggest name of all time. John McTiernan is arguably the most anonymous big time director we've seen in sort of the modern era right okay you ask any person even if they're a cinephile there's a lot of people who don't really know mctiernan it's a name they ignore in the title sequence for uh die hard or predator or hunt for october maybe they recognize and go oh I've, I've seen that name before but he is not a public figure in any way and even when he was arrested and sent to jail recently which we'll we'll get to in in later episodes when it's uh when appropriate it was not that big of a story and you'd think something like that for the director of die hard would become big but i think it just goes to show i you know whether it was a lack of self-promotion or just sort of a willingness to fade into the movies themselves and i think that you know it's part of his filmmaking techniques and ability I think it makes for a super interesting subject for this series. I agree with the word anonymous. And I think part of the reason that he has, that his name is so anonymous, relatively speaking, is part of why I wanted to kind of direct the spotlight towards him for a change. Uh, you mentioned his legal troubles. I mean, he basically has been out of the spotlight, if he ever was in the spotlight, since 2006, probably, right? For the last 13, 14 years. I mean, he hasn't made a movie since Basic. That's true. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, 2003 was was Basic. So he's been out of the spotlight. He's been off the grid even longer. You know, the last couple of movies he made before his legal troubles were not particularly well received. They're not thought of as being, you know, amongst his best. I would very much like for us to champion his great work talk about the incredible level of influence that he's had and also potentially discuss the idea of a rebirth or a comeback now we can't engineer that on our own no matter how many letters we send to the hollywood chamber of commerce you know we can't just get him out of director's jail or whatever he's in um, you know based on the power of this podcast but I just I, I really don't want to live in a world where we don't want to get where we don't get any more John McTiernan films. I think he still has some left in him. He's not that old. He's in his late 60s. I think he's still got something left in the tank. He's he's currently um, developing a film called uh, I believe it's called SETI Alpha 5. Yeah, which is to star Uma Thurman. We'll deep dive. We'll do some Googling. We'll try and compile as much information as is available <laughs> about that film. I don't think this is it for him, or at least I don't want to think this is it for him. I, I think there's still something left for him to say. 
he's highly motivated to keep making movies because you know yeah. <laughs> of his financial situation. But certainly, that's something we can get into at a later date. Matt, should we just start at the beginning here or what? Very little is actually known about the man prior to his uh, feature directorial debut. I mean, I'm sure you and I both did our own research and our own digging, you know, Wikipedia and beyond. But the little I could glean about the man's uh, upbringing was that he was he was born and raised in upstate New York, um, attended junior college there, got his uh, bachelor's at uh, Juilliard, which is pretty impressive, and uh, was studying playwriting and theatrical directing before catching this the movie bug getting into the american film institute getting his mfa there and then pretty quickly making his directorial debut with a little known film called nomads there's a gap there too i mean he he graduated from afi in 75 and then makes nomads in 86 good point yeah good point so he's he's just around trying to find himself for for 10 years and in 86 he's what 35 years old when he makes his debut movie so that gives a you know that's maybe another reason why we want to do this series on McTiernan gives gives us hope as as men in their mid-30s that you know career can start at any time right Matt well I guess it means that I beat him by three years then since I uh, I directed my first feature at uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 32 but uh, and it's a better movie than nomads oh now listen to you <laughs> it did not star pierce brosnan um although i you know i have nothing but affection for our the incredible cast of our film okay well we can get into nomads but um yeah there, there you're right there does seem to be a bit of of a gap there and you would think that it would have been filled by you know commercial considering where he went in the 80s and what he achieved and especially the late 80s you would think he would have been directing music videos directing commercials and maybe he was but there doesn't seem to be much record of that out there it really seems like this guy kind of emerged fully formed wrote and directed this wacky feature that to me feels very influenced by MTV, by the work of Michael Mann, maybe by the work of the Scott brothers even. I mean, it, it has its own voice and it has its own its own rhythms and it, it clearly like comes from a place of uh, creative confidence. The biggest takeaway from his first film, Nomads, is that he does seem to be, despite a small budget, despite not a great script that he wrote, he seems to be pretty fully formed with his sensibilities and we would see those continue you know, through his later work. When you type in John Mick on IMDb, he is not even the first entry. It is John <laughs> John McGinley. Okay. One of the greats. Sure. John McGinley is more famous than John McTiernan, which <laughs> we can argue the merits of that, but This is a more robust filmography, to be sure. All right, so Nomads. How would you explain the plot of Nomads, Matt? Well, it opens with um Pierce Brosnan being brought into a hospital. Uh, He's ranting and raving and talking in many different dialects, and he ends up uh, having a heart attack on on the gurney. But before he does, he transfers his consciousness into the brain of of one of the orderlies, or you know, one of the um, the doctor who is uh, who is attempting to treat him, and she begins to have flashbacks to the experience of his final week. And we, we, we experience the story of this Pierce Brosnan character through the consciousness of, uh, of the woman he transfers his experiences into. 
this man is Pierce Brosnan, who has a French accent and is an <laughs> expert, a world-leading archaeological expert on nomads and all different nomadic cultures throughout throughout the entire world and different time periods and whatnot. So that's the setup. And from there, it's just sort of off the rails moment after off the rails moment. <laughs> I don't know. Like this movie is more or less just kind of a mess. Uh, it's a nice short mess, <laughs> but it is a mess nonetheless. And visually, it's it's pretty entrancing, pretty exciting. This guy knows what to do with slow motion. He knows what to do with action. And uh, I sort of dug the weird music. Yeah, there's a couple things going on here. I believe Bill Conti wrote the score for this film. I'm going to push back a little bit on uh, declaring <laughs> this film to be a mess. I actually think it's pretty darn coherent, visually okay. at least. Uh, thematically, it may be a bit lost, a bit confused, or at least um, you know, not particularly clear in what it's trying to say. But yeah. in terms of the way that the story is is captured visually and in, in the way that the uh, you know the film is constructed, I think it's actually pretty clean, pretty easy to follow, and pretty fluid, to be honest. And I like the idea of declaring this guy kind of fully formed as um, you know as a coherent storyteller on his first film. I mean, he hasn't he is not a writer director. He is almost always uh, more of a gun for hire. He only has a couple of writing credits in his entire filmography. That's another one of the reasons we wanted to cover somebody like McTiernan this time around was we didn't necessarily want to cover, you know, a writing, directing, auteur. But this this movie is kind of silly in that it it's unsuccessful at being a supernatural thriller, but I think it's quite successful at being sort of like a paranoid like as as a surveillance, as like a paranoid surveillance thriller, I think it's successful. As a supernatural thriller, which is eventually where it ends up landing, I find it to be less successful. I just want to say that those last two minutes are the most impassioned defense of nomads ever put on the tape. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. You are you are officially Earth's greatest nomads defender. I kind of like this movie. I've watched it twice in the last six months, <laughs> prepping so that I could be you know prepared for this um you know i take this stuff seriously i'm a professional yeah no this isn't a good movie i think it's sitting at 23 percent or something on rotten tomatoes it doesn't have a particularly good reputation i mean it's basically i mean talk about anonymous i mean nobody most people haven't even heard of this film it you know i couldn't even find a budget on this thing i presume potentially less than a million dollars i think it ended up making two or three but yeah most people don't know don't care i think it's an interesting sort of curiosity as a debut I just appreciate how confident of a debut it is. He's kind of owning the silliness of it all. Oh, he definitely is. I mean, he knows what he's doing. I mean, the, the way I want to look at this movie is this is just McTiernan's audition reel, right? This is He just needed to show Hollywood, this is what I can do. This is what I did on a small budget. It's a calling card. Um, it's a calling card, for sure. And the fact that he got Pierce Brosnan to do this, I think during Remington Steel. Yeah, right smack dab in the middle. Remington Steel ran from 82 to 87. It's interesting to think about the alternate history wherein Brosnan ends up doing ends up becoming James Bond earlier, right? Yeah. Because I believe that he was in the running for Bond for uh, Living Daylights. Interesting. Which was um 
which was Timothy Dalton's first Bond movie. So if he ends, and the reason that he couldn't do Living Daylights was because his Remington Steel contract got renewed. If Remington Steel doesn't get picked up, and if Brosnan becomes Bond, maybe Gerard Depardieu ends up doing Nomads, right? Oh, God. Because Gerard Depardieu was apparently the person, you know, was McTiernan's first choice for this role. Okay. Well, that's a real French accent, I suppose. Exactly. Brosnan's French accent is is pretty terrible to the point where you kind of wish that they would have just written that out of the character. Like, why does the character need There's to be There's no French? reason for it at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if if it was written for Gerard Depardieu or, you know, they wanted Gerard Depardieu to play this French guy, that's fine. But once you lose Depardieu and you recast it with Brosnan, why can't he just be an Irish nomadic expert, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, change the name I, of the character. I want to explain these quote-unquote urban nomads here. <laughs> Because this is, I mean, this whole movie, the crux of this movie is that this, you know, this expert has, has come, a, come across this, this, this new nomadic tribe that is, uh, that exists in LA and they're really just sort of vampiric biker gang burnouts who are sort of intimidating and imbued with some bizarre supernatural tendencies, right? Yeah, one of them played by Adam Ant. They're speciously referred to as nomads, but they're the big boogeymen of of this movie. I don't know. I mean, this movie's not boring, and it's not uh, unenjoyable to watch. Like I said, a, a breezy 92 minutes or whatever. So uh, as, as, far, as far as first movies slash calling cards slash you know, small budget things go... Um, it's nothing to be embarrassed about, that's for sure. Yeah, not unpleasant. And it's it's sort of an interesting invocation of nocturnal Los Angeles. I mean, so much of it is just Brosnan driving around Los Angeles at night taking pictures, all of which I find to be um, kind of hypnotic in a very Michael Mann sort of way. So much of it takes place around like Ocean Park and the Santa Monica Pier and then into Venice and so uh, the fact that a lot of it takes place kind of in my old neighborhood around Park Avenue off the boardwalk in Venice, I kind of felt nostalgic for, the, for that particular <laughs> neighborhood, even though I certainly obviously wasn't there in 1986. And it was probably quite a bit rougher then than it was when I lived there, you know, maybe a decade ago. It's an interesting Los Angeles movie for sure. And yes. it has some weird little flights of fancy. There's a particular nightmare that involves a nun which I thought was particularly well-crafted. Mm-hmm. In my notes, I refer to it as a, as a, nunt, a nuntmare. It really rolls off the tongue. Which I'm going to try to make that happen. <laughs> and it's also interesting to kind of watch a film about an urban nomadic punk kind of culty murder squad in a year in which we're revisiting and talking so much about the anniversaries of the Manson family murders, right? I mean, there's so much panic in this movie about these crazy punky you know, bikers or whatever they are, it, it there's something kind of quaint about thinking back to a time in the 80s when, you know, like bikers were <laughs> sort of something to be feared. I was I was listening to a podcast um, yesterday where they were revisiting uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, mm-hmm. and they were talking about how the two things that John Connor has to fear at the beginning of that movie, one is the cops, which is something that a, um, you know, juvenile delinquent like John Connor obviously has reason to fear. And so the T-1000 comes back in the form of a cop. And then the other thing that a kid would be scared of would be like 
a biker dude, right? <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> somebody in, in, you know, somebody in sunglasses and leather coming at you. So it's kind of like these two weird pathological fears that were bouncing around in the late 80s and early 90s. And this movie kind of weaponizes that, you know, fear of the other, fear of the biker other. So Matt, do you have anything more of, of substance to discuss with nomads here? <laughs> I'm trying to pick every last bit of meat off this bone. <laughs> okay. But there's well, not much going on with this movie. I'll admit that, yeah. The most important thing about nomads, Matt, is this. Somehow, Arnold Schwarzenegger saw this movie. He decided that this guy, whoever directed this movie, Nomads, about these weird vampire biker nomads would be the right person to direct his jungle space alien action film, a movie called Predator. The idea that this movie Nomads was a calling card absolutely worked to perfection and got perhaps the biggest star of the time to pay attention and uh, hire him just sort of outright to make this movie Predator. So it's an overwhelming success. Uh, in retrospect, isn't it? Humongous success. Just uh, couldn't have played it any better. So I, I got to do a brief episode of Knutson's Context Corner here because I Let's have I got a little bit of background. When I went to UCLA, I got to know this really interesting and accomplished gentleman named Bo Marks. His position at UCLA, I believe, is just chief safety officer. For a lot of students, he when Bo Marks comes walking down the hallway, that means something bad is going to happen. That means you've done something wrong. That means you've accidentally, uh, you know, put the leg of your light stand in a in a fire lane. That means that you haven't ventilated your soundstage properly. It means you plug something in wrong. It means you accidentally set off a, an alarm. When Bo comes onto your set, it's almost always bad news. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how I felt about him when I first, the first couple of times I encountered him, uh, you know, spending five years at that school and working on those sound stages and eventually putting together my own feature. Uh, I came to know the man as somebody who is safety oriented because he has such an incredible wealth of experience with enormous and logistically complicated productions that he's worked on over the course of a really illustrious career. The reason that I bring him up is because he has credits on Predator, Die Hard, and The Hunt for Red October, which are the th next three films we're going to talk about. So he was intimately involved with the making of those three films. He worked very closely with McTiernan. He was involved with Predator long before McTiernan came on board. So I called him this afternoon. He was incredibly generous with his time and with his insight as a UPM, a line producer, and eventually as a second unit director. He did tell me that basically McTiernan's involvement in Predator was not just as a result of um, his endorsement from Schwarzenegger, but because he also had gotten the attention of Joel Silver. Are you familiar with Joel Silver? Of course. For those who aren't, to call Joel Silver a legendary producer, I feel would be an enormous understatement. Joel Silver has basically been a pivotal figure in every important action film <laughs> bullet points over the course of the last 40 years let's say not to go off on a tangent but let's just let's just dance through the career of uh, of joel silver really quickly just starting in the early 80s the warriors 48 hours streets of fire brewster's millions that's where joel silver meets Bo on the set of brewster's millions commando Bo and joe also work on that film together jumpin jack flash lethal weapon then on to predator die hard roadhouse Lethal Weapon 2, Predator 2, The Last Boy Scout. Okay, now we're getting into Tony Scott territory. Demolition Man, <laughs> Lethal Weapon 4, and then The Matrix. 
Mm-hmm. So, and then <laughs> Romeo Must Die with Jet Li. Let's see. A V for Vendetta. He's still involved with the Wachowski siblings. Uh, he's a Shane Black guy, too. Speed Racer. He's a Shane Black guy. Rock and Rolla. Sherlock Holmes. Game. Okay, so now he's a guy. Richie guy. Rock and Rolla. Sherlock Holmes. Game of Shadows. Getaway nonstop. Okay, now he's working with, you know, Liam Neeson and all those guys. So, anyway, uh, again, just an absolutely legendary figure has just helped to push action filmmaking forward over the course of his incredible career. So Bo and Joel are working on developing Predator. Schwarzenegger is obviously attached. He's got a lot of pull at this point in his career. He is post-commando. And uh, they all decide to give this McTiernan guy a shot because of what he was able to accomplish with a shoestring on Nomads, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, Predator was a modestly budgeted project wikipedia has it as 15 to 18 after a couple months they ended up having to shut down production so they could go back and redesign the alien because the first iteration of the predator was a disaster and a good thing they did because they made one of the greatest creatures in film history and if you believe wikipedia or if you know wikipedia lore has any foundation in the truth stan winston who was eventually brought on to reconceptualize the titular creature also took some cues from James Cameron. And this is and this is post Alien. No, this is post Terminator and Aliens James Cameron. So the legend is that Stan Winston was on a plane with James Cameron. They were having a conversation about this movie that Winston was sort of noodling. Cameron was the guy who came up with the mandibles. For the mm-hmm. uh, for the predator because he's always he, he'd always wanted to see a movie monster with mandibles. The mandibles are key. True. Especially yeah. once he takes that mask off. Yeah, Predator is uh, comes out in 1987. I mean, that's one year after Nomads. Again, I feel like anyone our age has a crazy long history with this movie. I mean, this is the one of the movies you watch as a 13, 14, 15-year-old boy over and over again, as much as you can get your hands on it. One of the hallmarks of, of John McTiernan, at least through these four, first four movies, and I'm sure we see it later, is this guy does not fuck around at the beginning of his movies, man. <laughs> And that's maybe my favorite attribute of this guy as a director. And one of the things I complain about most with action movies. Let's cut the preamble and get right the hell into it. And uh, Predator is a sterling example of this because we get maybe five minutes before... I mean, I mean, we're literally dropped into the jungle in the first scene. But we're already on a helicopter on the way to the mission, like you said, five minutes later. Ten minutes later, at the most. We meet the crew... We get the best, uh, you know, handshake ever between Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just how how macho can you possibly be? What's the matter? The CIA got you pushing too many pencils? You know, I miss Carl Weathers, and we're going to see uh, a lot more of him. He's in, uh, God, what is he in? Oh, he's, he's in, in the, the Mandalorian. Mandalorian. Yeah, yeah. And was a scene stealer earlier this summer as Combat Carl in Toy Story 4. Yes, indeed. You know, he's, he's basically spoofing his persona in this film, in Toy Story 4, which I thought was absolutely delightful. Certain, you know, highfalutin cinema academics have read this film as a bit of a, um, of a commentary on the idea of the macho action film, right? Sure. Like, the idea would be reading all the different characters in this team as different, like, action cinema cliches, right? Sure. I think that might be giving this movie a little bit too much credit, but I think there's a lot more going on than the, you know, 13-year-old boys at a slumber party reputation this movie has or maybe had up until relatively recently would suggest. I mean, what you're talking about, you know, in terms of this being sort of like a meat and potatoes basic cable classic, 
I think that that was the film's reputation for at least the first 10 years after it came out, right? I mean, this movie mm-hmm. this movie didn't really get respect as an important piece of 1980s cinema, probably up until the last decade or so, I would think. Well, I guess we've seen recently that you don't really need time to respect a straight out action movie. I mean, we saw, you know, Mad, whether it's Mad Max or Dark Knight or whatever, but it does feel like in the 80s, it was a, it was a less respected genre in terms of, uh, you know, reputable critics giving a movie like this four stars. I, I don't know about that. And like, I'm curious to see where you feel the depth and profundity in this movie, because why I love this movie is, is just how goddamn simple and to the point it is, right? There's not, there's no plot besides let's find this thing and kill it, and that's the movie. Like, we don't need to add anything more into it. We don't need to have love interest. We don't need to dick around and try to, you know, create plot out of nothing. We're just going to drop five dudes into a, into a jungle, and they're going to have to kill an alien. Boom. End of story. There's a great many hack filmmakers who could have been given that premise and could have probably pretty easily made a you know, at least financially successful film out of that. Oh, absolutely. But it's, yeah, it's all about execution. Yeah, where this movie transcends for me is in The Craft. It's McTiernan's second film, but it is it is the film where he really proves himself. Because this movie transcends, you know, either in spite of or because of its simplicity is based on uh, McTiernan's instincts. Now, something that Bo told me this afternoon when we were talking about this movie and I was like asking him you know what what is it about McTiernan's approach like what I can't put my finger on where that brilliance is coming from or what he's doing that's so unique I know that it's there but I'm working to try to define it Bo's observation having been there on the ground and having like watched the legacy of this movie over the last 30 years just grow and grow was that there is that there is nobody more prepared than McTiernan, regardless of the subject matter, regardless of how highbrow, you know, whether it's super lowbrow Predator or it's, you know, higher brow. Thomas Crown Affair. Thomas Crown yeah. Affair, the, you know, the uh, Hunt for Red October, even though, you know, kind of based on pulpy uh, airport novel or whatever. But if you want to make the distinction between highbrow and lowbrow, McTiernan doesn't make that distinction. He's going to be he's going to show up to the set just as prepared, regardless of the subject matter regardless of the source material. And uh, Bo said McTiernan is the most is one of the most prepared guys he's ever worked with and that he measures absolutely everything. He measures the length of ground that they're going to need to put the dolly track on. He measures the angle of elevation of the hill where Schwarzenegger is going to be standing. He measures the distance between the lens and wherever Schwarzenegger is going to Apparently, he's just very scientifically minded. You know, observations like that make him sound a little bit like Cameron in terms of his his incredible sort of scientific and mechanical dedication to the filmmaking process and he said he said he's one of the most prepared guys that he's ever seen that he works harder than everybody on set and he said he was just so blown away by how focused and how prepared he was yeah that makes a lot of sense because you know one of the takeaways just thinking about these as action movies action franchises or what have you is first off he he's got style but he's never flashy like he you, he kind of disappears behind the camera, and that might have something to do with how anonymous you know it is. If you saw a new movie by McTiernan, you wouldn't be able to immediately guess it was McTiernan. I mean, you might down the line think, oh, this seems like something John McTiernan could do, but he doesn't have any sort of flashy calling cards or anything. But another thing is, especially in this you know genre of, of action filmmaking, sci-fi, whatever, and, and this is where other filmmakers fuck up, is like the action happens so organically. Like, you never go, oh, here comes a set piece, or I feel like this is all being set up so we can get to a gunfighter and action scene. Like, especially in Die Hard, 
we'll get to that later, like everything happens so seamlessly and so organically. Nothing sort of takes you out of the movie at any point. You're always in there. I have to believe that this sort of technical acumen that you're talking about has a big spot in that because like you said, it, it really is kind of difficult to pinpoint what makes this guy so damn good. You know, he talks a lot when he's being interviewed about how he kind of like looks at filmmaking like musical composition and how the individual notes themselves don't really matter. What matters is the entire composition. What matters is stepping back and looking at the whole. There are certain filmmakers who I think are kind of like, you know, maybe even somebody like Stanley Kubrick, where the individual compositions are kind of the thing, right? They tend to they tend to live in certain compositions for longer. Uh, they want you know they want an, sort of an intellectual dialectic between their individual shots and the juxtaposition of those shots and more or of kind even of a, someone like uh, Tarantino, right? Sure, and you know man, maybe there's more of like an intellectual montage Eisensteinian approach there, which is fine and that works for some filmmakers. I feel like when it comes to McTiernan, his shots don't speak to each other. His shots are different words in the same sentence. Yeah. And the word I just keep coming back to is fluidity or even almost kind of like a visual lucidity, fluidity and coherence in the way he constructs not just action sequences, but the film as a whole. And uh, and there's a cleanliness that is, again, not particularly flashy in the way that, uh, you know, maybe Tony Scott's filmmaking, you know, can draw attention to its individual compositions. There are certainly eye-poppingly beautiful images in his films you know there's a shot you know there's shots of uh, of a truck coming over olympic boulevard in die hard and the sun is setting behind it right you know yeah. things that just sear themselves into your brain but to me it's it's not the individual shots themselves it's the way his films flow and it's the way he tells the story the most underrated aspect of action filmmaking is is always geography and not throwing your not you know not throwing your audience's sense of geography or understanding of of you know any individual action out of whack. Yeah, for sure. And this guy is uh, is more or less a master of that. I think fluidity. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, that's that's what you get from all these movies. And part of what happens when you have something this fluid is you sort of cut out the fat. Nothing is going to seem out of place, and that's going to make sure that you have a nice tight movie every time and you know we're still early on his filmography maybe maybe that will change with uh, some of his later films as we get to them but man these movies are just air fucking tight that's one of the best features you can have as as any sort of genre action filmmaker yeah i agree yeah there's certainly yeah there's obviously no fat in this and there's no fat in die hard even though i think die hard is is a little bit north of two hours part of predator's special sauce is that there, there, there's, I think there's a bit of Agatha Christie in the design of this narrative, right? Bo said something this afternoon when I was talking to him, which really resonated for me, and I hadn't even considered it before, which is that he doesn't think of McTiernan as an action director. He thinks of McTiernan as someone who directs thrillers that have action elements. And that's an, that's an interesting perspective, considering that you know both Predator and Die Hard are so often you know held up as you know bastions of of action cinema but bo says that mctiernan's approach was always that these were thrillers now if we want to get down to some sort of elemental you know atomic distinction between the two we could i think that would probably be kind of boring but i think that he's he's not nearly as interested in even though he's oftentimes associated with explosions and machine guns and the more bombastic stuff, I think he's always constructing these 
as taut, fun thrillers. What do we talk about when we talk about action movies these days? We talk about the set pieces, or what was your favorite set piece in this movie, or this set piece was really amazing. And you can't really pinpoint any quote-unquote set pieces in any of these films, right? Like I said, they all happen fluidly, organically, within the plot of the movie. I mean, there are some diehard, there are some small gun battles, some small chases, but I think that's absolutely right. These are thrillers that happen to have a little bit of action here and there, but the action is is uh, so so earned. It feels maybe bigger than it actually is if you went down, like you said, to the atomic level. Has Predator always been an important film for you? I mean, I, obviously both of us are too young to have seen it in the theater, but was this always a basic cable classic? Was this just always on slumber parties in the background, HBO? Has this movie always kind of been a part of your life? You know, it hasn't been like the biggest part of my life, but it it is the sort of paragon of these kinds of movies where it's just like i if you have this particular itch to scratch this is the movie you pick every time right i don't want to think too hard i just want to see some cool action in the jungle with big ass movie star and a cool creature like this is this is the answer but no i mean i don't think it had any sort of huge influence on my movie going tastes or habits how about you no not especially i mean i feel like i sort of came to it later in life i mean i certainly was aware of it i was familiar with it but it was only once i really started seeing people refer to it as you know maybe schwarzenegger's best movie i i i don't think it's controversial to state that you know this terminate the aforementioned terminator 2 judgment day and total recall are probably Schwarzenegger's best films, right? I haven't really thought about that, but uh, I mean, I would say Terminator 2 probably. I know that's sort of a basic bitch answer, but... Yeah, I mean, and I don't think it's coincidental that it's him working with three of the best directors. I think Verhoeven and McTiernan probably have a little bit of overlap as well in terms of sure. their... You know, like I, I rewatched Basic Instinct again over the weekend because <laughs> I've been thinking so much about Michael Douglas lately. He's another director who, you know, oftentimes the cleanliness of his filmmaking or the sophistication of his filmmaking gets lost in the subject matter. Sure. And uh, when, I was, when I was reading some of these interviews with McTiernan, he was singing the praises of Verhoeven as an influence because they were kind of contemporary. I mean, Verhoeven predates McTiernan a little bit, and he's obviously, you know, a, a European director. But if you really think about it, when McTiernan was real, or McTiernan and Verhoeven really both sort of coming of age, coming to prominence in American cinema in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, the fact that Schwarzenegger worked with all three of them in succession during probably his most fertile period, right? Yeah. Probably 85 to probably that 10-year stretch from from Commando to um, True Lies. You know, I don't think he's ever been as hot as he was right after True Lies. Well, and credit to credit to Schwarzenegger for, you know, being smart enough to understand that he needed to hitch his wagon to real talent. So like, you know, his star wasn't an accident. Right? 100%. I think Schwarzenegger has very good taste. And, and well, and, and, and a nice modesty he knows what he is. <laughs> he was engaged to Maria Shriver uh, before they went into production of this, and they actually took a brief hiatus so that, well, the production didn't take a hiatus. Schwarzenegger took a hiatus, flew up, got married, uh, came back, and the production didn't skip a beat. One of the things this movie does best, and one of the greatest decisions they made, was to film it pretty much entirely on location. Lesser filmmakers, producers with you know less of a stomach for it, would not have have done this. Would have would have gone into you know a studio setting for for a lot of the stuff. But to do the difficult work of of filming in the jungle does this movie wonders. Absolutely, it's something that we just don't 
prioritize anymore in the age of of the green screen you know an avengers movie shooting almost 100 percent against a green screen in suburban atlanta yeah we just don't get this level of authenticity anymore which is a shame it makes a huge goddamn difference it really does it, it really does and you know so much of this movie you know was practical although obviously there's some very impressive optical effects at work here as well the special effects were nominated for an oscar although according to Bo, even though you know this movie was logistically complicated for obvious reasons like shooting in you know 90 degrees with 90 percent humidity virtually every day shooting in these jungles shooting on crazy slopes shooting with crazy you know costumes and explosions he said that uh, the stories you know the horror stories about this movie's production have been somewhat overblown like he said that you know it wasn't Everybody wasn't deathly ill through this entire thing, that tensions weren't running that high, that for the most part, when it came to illness, it was mostly because the crew were like, you know, running off and and drinking too much on their days off. He said it really had less to do with like the cleanliness of the food or the water and more just the fact that people were kind of partying because they were shooting so close to Puerto Vallarta. Yeah. So like I've spent some time down there, you know, I've gone on vacation to Sayulita, which is a little north of Puerto Vallarta and they have, you know, a place where you can go see some of the locations. So there's a lot there and there's some nice little beach towns where you can hang out. And it's, it's not like they're in the middle of the Congo or anything. (laughs) They were probably fine. And some of these, locations were revisited by you know mctiernan when he made medicine man which we'll get to in the next episode in terms of the jungle uh one of the fun stories bo told me this afternoon was that when they were originally capturing test footage testing out the uh you know the thermal imaging you know the predator view uh when they were trying to figure out how they're going to shoot it they were actually shooting with thermal imaging cameras in the hopes that they could just distinguish the contrast between the jungle and the, uh, you know, the living being. And he said the problem that they found was that it was so hot that basically the jungle and the live thing, you know, the subject were basically the same temperature. So there was no <laughs> distinction between what was moving in the frame and the jungle behind them, right? So they're racking their brain trying to figure out how they're gonna do this. How are we gonna be able to shoot this thing? And it was Bo's idea to go and fill all the water trucks up with ice cold water so that they could spray down the jungle, bring the temperature of the jungle down so that when somebody walked in front of the forest, you'd be able to see this distinction between the two. <laughs> so whenever you're seeing predator mode, you're looking at You know, you're looking at an image of a jungle that was minutes ago just hosed down with cold water. Also, Jean-Claude Van Damme famously played the Predator for the first couple weeks of shooting and was uh, unceremoniously fired from the production. (laughs) And it sounds like he wasn't particularly disappointed by that. It sounds like he wasn't having a particularly good time. I I can't imagine he was. And what a ridiculous thing to be cast in and agree to as Jean-Claude Van Damme. I just want to call out uh, Carl Weathers' severed arm continuing to pull the trigger as one of my favorite <laughs> moments in the film and uh, get get to the choppa never not funny never not funny and i will say the the worst part of this movie slash best part is the too many cooks ish final montage and credit sequence oh i love that you don't like the roll call <laughs> well it's it, it's very silly and it doesn't seem like it's a similar tone of the movie, but I do. Yeah, I mean, of course I enjoy it. All right, well, John McTiernan has his first big, uh, you know, modest to big hit. $15 million budget, uh, worldwide box office, 98 mil. Not too shabby. For that year, not too shabby at all. And then this guy, this workhorse, after months in the jungle, turns right around and the next year releases Die Hard with, uh, as of yet, uh, not an action star, Bruce Willis. 
And it only becomes, I don't know, probably consensus favorite action movie, favorite Christmas movie of, of, of all time, if you sort of pulled, I guess, the general populace. By implication, you are suggesting that you fall into this is a Christmas movie camp. No, I don't. I'm really? sorry. I shouldn't have brought that. Well, no, I just don't care. I don't think it's a good <laughs> conversation. I feel like it's a conversational crutch, and I don't like it. And I don't want people to even mention, have this conversation again. I, I feel awful for bringing it up. <laughs> uh, it is funny that it has become such a flashpoint in the last few years. People are just obsessed with this distinction. It's, it's, it's the same thing as like, is hot dog a sandwich or what's your, <laughs> what's your Hogwarts house or whatever? Like I'm, I've had enough of it. Yeah. But, okay. but you are, you are wrong. It is a Christmas movie, but we can. No. <laughs> I mean, who cares if it's a Christmas movie or not? If it makes, if it's, if it's between watching this or Santa Claus, then watch this. A Christmas movie that came out in July. Yes. <laughs> so they didn't think it was a Christmas movie. That's it just celebrated its thirtieth birth, uh, birthday a few uh, last month. Uh, well, 30, 31st birthday. I'm sorry, 88. Yes, you're right. You're right. It's 88, 89. Yes, it's 31 years old. Sorry. I, I, I was just listening to a podcast about um, Do the Right Thing earlier today, and that movie celebrated its 30th anniversary this year. But yes, Die Hard, July of 1988, starring a TV star, Paris the Thought. Apparently, every major movie star, every major male movie star at the time passed on this project. Quoting Wikipedia, the script was offered to a variety of other actors, including Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, what a movie that would have been. Sylvester Stallone, Harrison Ford, Don Johnson, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, and Richard Dean Anderson. The only one out of those that I think would be on par would maybe be Harrison Ford. I mean, I'm sure he was probably top of that list, right? Yeah, I'm just saying in terms of the the final product, what would have been a comparable movie? I, I don't see it. I, I just don't see. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm you know I'm the world's biggest Harrison Ford fan, and I I, I love those alternate histories like you know Harrison Ford in Traffic or whatever. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I just I just do not see it in this movie. I I think yeah. It I, has to be Bruce. Well, yeah, and I think Harrison Ford is a little too old, and just maybe I don't know. I just don't see it. It's it it does have to be Bruce because there is a there is a blue collar quality that comes with Bruce Willis which is kind of this character's secret weapon, right? And Bruce yeah. can Bruce can tap that in ways that none of his contemporaries really can. Again, I just want to parrot what I said about Predator, but for an action movie, this film gets right to it on the outset. There's a little more work to be done setting up the plot in Die Hard than there is in Predator. But holy shit, is uh, McTiernan economical in getting to the damn point? And he's, you know, he's got to explain the, the dynamic between him and his wife, Bonnie Bedelia, he's got to just set up a couple things. But really, a lesser movie would have taken a half hour where this movie takes 10 minutes. Yeah, it's based on a book called Nothing Lasts Forever by Robert Thorpe. It's a sequel to a book that was made into a movie called The Detective, starring Frank Sinatra. Famously, that was the movie that Frank Sinatra insisted his then-wife, Mia Farrow, would co-star with him in. When she honored her dedica- when she honored her commitment to Rosemary's Baby, he subsequently divorced her. So when they optioned this book, they were contractually obligated to offer the part to Frank Sinatra before any of those guys you just mentioned. <laughs> and he, of course, declined. Yes, <laughs> just, we're all better for it. But uh, but yeah, based on a book and having not read it, uh, apparently the movie is quite faithful to that book. Well, with few I mean, exceptions. Th- that, that makes sense because the movie 
is the setup, right? Like there's there's not for how much stuff goes on. There's this is not the most complex thing in the world, right? Sort of similar to Predator, guy stuck in a building with terrorists. Yes, and I believe in the book they are more overtly terrorists, whereas this movie, you know, pivots them. It, it uses the terrorism stuff as misdirection to mask their real intention, which is um, which is that they're just straight up thieves. And uh, apparently McTiernan was insistent upon that because he didn't want this to be an overly political film. He wanted it above all else to just be fun. And, you know, the fact that there is no political undertones to the quote-unquote bad guys' intentions perhaps makes them more relatable. You know, perhaps it makes them less bad guys. And by that, I would like to suggest that this film is just as interested in exploring the journey of the bad guys, or at least Alan Rickman, as it is in exploring John McClane's journey, right? Doesn't this film seem just as fascinated by Hans as it does by McClane, and the film is better for it? It does, and the interesting thing this movie does is John McClane has his mission, right? Stay alive, try to save people or the cops, whatever. And then the bad guys also have their mission, which is a little bit of a heist move, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And there's a lot of business they have to take care of while they're doing it. And and John McTiernan sort of treats it as if it was a protagonist trying to break into a bank or something. Absolutely. And there's even moments of triumph for the quote-unquote bad guys that the movie treats as moments of triumph. Yeah. And one of the greatest moments in this or maybe any movie is when they finally crack the vaults and that uh, and that you know that beethoven sample michael kamen's beethoven sample really kicks into high gear it is a it's a beautiful transcendent moment that gives me goosebumps just thinking about it and it's the (laughs) bad guys doing nefarious things and it's crazy i mean i part of that script part of that uh, tone part of that's acting but you, you can't help but sort of Maybe likes too strong a word, but definitely respect Alan Rickman and his his plot. I mean, it is an all time sort of clever, simple bad guy plot, and they thought of everything except for John McClane. <laughs> and so you have these two really equal competing forces going at each other, uh, which is a recipe for for a great movie, and none of it feels overly contrived people talk about die hard forever and we're, we're sort of you know going over the same thing but this 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 is what makes a fucking incredible action movie it's, it's all these different uh, you know parts of the recipe but when you nail all of them you're gonna get something great let's even get rid of the word action you know like yes. let's just movie. Like, this is just great a it's just a great movie or even to call it a great thriller which is you know apparently how mctiernan thought of it just a classic movie and even like talking about the template that this movie basically created is almost dismissive of just how successful it is as an entertainment it is a practically perfect movie in every way it does basically everything right there are there's there's basically no low points to this film you know, structurally, narratively, it's practically perfect in every way. Just going back to Rickman for a second, I mean, this has got to be one of the all-time great debut performances, right? I mean, this is literally his first time in a theatrical feature. He had made TV movies. He had been on TV shows. He'd obviously had done great work on the stage. I mean, where McTiernan, I think, first noticed him was um, stage version of uh, Dangerous Liaisons. This is a debut. This is a this is a debut performance in a big movie. And if the villain doesn't work in this movie, I think the movie kind of falls apart. Yeah, no, you know, Rickman is obviously 
just fantastic and you know that'd be a fun list to try to figure out the best uh, adult debuts in uh, in movie history I, I just feel like if you you know if you ask educated cinephiles who are the great actors directors of let's even just say of the 80s to make it a smaller subset I don't think John McTiernan would, you know, would would be one of the top 20 people anybody came up with, right? No. And yet he, you know, he basically gave Pierce Brosnan his feature debut and uh, and Rickman his feature debut. And and he's worked with actors like Bruce Willis and Sean Connery and Pierce Brosnan in multiple films over the years, which says to me that he creates an environment where actors, you know, feel safe and want to continue to return to his sets. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's always thought of for his his action sequences or for um, you know, his, his his visual storytelling. But I think there's some extraordinary performances in this in these films as well. Not least of which is Rickman, which may be the single greatest performance in a John McTiernan movie. Yeah, I mean that that's uh that might be true and it's not only the, the the leads, right? Like this movie is peppered with incredible character work whether it's yeah. you know, Bonnie Bedelia or Reginald Bell Johnson and, Oh yeah. and uh, oh uh, William Atherton of course. William Atherton is amazing. Basically playing the same role as he played in Ghostbusters, which for better or for worse is is the is the character he, he you know his career will be defined by. But but all these characters have their own very specific motivations and characterizations and they get a little room to breathe here and there like it's again it's it's, it's a perfect movie and there's there's no false note among any of the characters i even love the i don't know why i always love this guy but the 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 terrorist who plays the security guard who looks like huey lewis i fucking love that guy i don't know why (laughs) i just love his look yeah i know i know who you're talking about i can't remember the guy's name but i know exactly what you're talking about what you mentioned william atherton paul gleason of course who again is in terms of like playing a, a sort of a stock archetype that they became famous for i mean he's basically he's basically translating his principle from the breakfast club into this context right and it works unbelievably well alexander gudinov you know is amazing as as rickman's kind of second in command there's a there's a wonderful b plot involving he and his brother you know i think people always tend to go back to hart bachner as well right who's kind of a he's kind of a scene stealer for a number of reasons if if anybody is coming a little too close to going over the top in this movie it's probably him but having no, i love it it feels it feels real it feels like an 80s salesman wall street sleazebag guy i love it yeah he of course plays alice you know who's chipping coke through the whole movie and uh, and he does get to steal a couple of scenes of course famously he went on to direct pcu probably yeah, the thing famously he's, <laughs> the thing he's most famous for besides playing ellis and then the the johnsons a- agent johnson special agent johnson no relation one of whom is the great robert davi uh, the other is an actor whose name escapes me. Uh, uh, his name is Grand Bush. He's very he's very funny. There's a great scene with he and Davi in the um, you know in the helicopters above Century City. It's just this movie is just kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. It just it just kind of blooms and blooms and blossoms and becomes bigger and becomes more elaborate and becomes funnier and weirder and more ambitious and it's just pure four on the floor entertainment, right? Yeah, it it you know it, it keeps ascending. It, it really doesn't have a third act problem. It sort of keeps it, it, it even peaks in the third act climax. I mean, the most famous bad guy death ever, probably right. Incredible slow mo of Rickman falling 
falling his, to his demise. And I want to go back to something you said about Predator, extremely underrated aspect, but this movie doesn't work if it's if it's not there. It's just the pure geography of Nakatomi Plaza. It's just knowing where people are at any given time and having a sense of what floor Bruce Willis is on, where he's going, where the danger is. Yeah. All that stuff works so well and it's so inherent to this movie's success. It's seamless. It's fluid. It doesn't come, you know, there's no sort of banger bang the audience over the head with exactly where people are but uh, he gets it done without you knowing it and it's 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 so goddamn important to uh, what's going on in the movie yeah and i'm going to credit a couple people with that in addition to mctiernan uh, first and foremost i'm going to credit Bo, who was second unit director associate producer and upm on this movie for people who don't know what a upm is it's basically the all-purpose on-set fixer it's the person who fixes problems. It's the first. It's the person who solves problems before the problem gets to a director. It's the person who's kind of working with the first AD and with the line producer to get out in front of issues, logistical or otherwise, or often legal as well. Something Bo told me was that part of the reason that this movie was able to come together in the way that it did, and part of the reason that it looks so much bigger than the budget would um, suggest, is that they were able to secure this building that they used as Nakatomi Plaza in Century City, which of course belong, which was owned by 20th Century Fox and was yeah. in the process of being built. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with the, um, with the geography of Century City in Los Angeles, 20th Century Fox sits on Pico Boulevard right in the middle of Century City. The Fox building that they use for Nakatomi Plaza is about three blocks away. You know, <laughs> you basically had the Fox lot and your primary location sitting within a couple blocks of each other. So as a well, result, home game. Yeah. it really is. I mean, they're basically just able to take over Century City. And, you know, and when you're trying to fly helicopters over Century City, you know, block streets and get cops and tanks and explosions, they really were able to uh, to capitalize on on this particular neighborhood and the facts that and the fact that Fox owned so much real estate there. Second person that I would like to credit with this, with with why this movie works so well geographically, is the great Jan de Bont. Brilliant cinematographer. He and McTiernan, just the look of this film, which they then carry over into The Hunt for Red October, is just so specific and yet not flashy. You know, like they're utilizing flares and they're utilizing whip pans and they're using, you know, incredible dolly pushes. You know, they're not drawing attention to it the way that maybe J.J. Abrams does with his flares, right? Uh, Jan de Bont is using these very, very fast lenses, meaning that they, they open up really, really wide to allow as much light in as possible. Like there was a special lens that they use for this film, which like opened up to like a T 1.1, which is almost unheard of. That's like Barry Lyndon NASA level, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he was also doing push processing, which helps to dig into the shadows a little bit more and then also help the lights of Los Angeles bloom in the background of these shots. They would go on to work on, um, the hunt for red October as well and they haven't worked together since and when i asked bo about that he and i both sort of came to the conclusion that it was mostly because yon de bont became so incredibly successful um as a cinematographer that he just ended up directing yeah you know and he pretty much hasn't really he hasn't shot a movie since the 90s and then the other person i would like to credit is the production designer uh, jackson degovia speed volcano Forgetting Sarah Marshall, forty-year-old virgin. So there, there's, there's a pretty good, pretty good filmography here, and yeah, just the ability to use this building where they, you know, that they used for Nakatomi Plaza, and just little signifiers, you know, like little things going on, a centerfold rather 
of a naked woman taped to a wall. The fact that he is traversing so much this building, he's going up and down elevator shafts, just little details, like just, you know, sometimes just turn the sound off and just watch this movie and just think about the simplicity of these just little visual signifiers to remind you where you are at any given time. Yeah, it's it's more or less a perfect movie. I don't, you know, I don't think we need to really talk about its legacy. Its legacy is pretty darn apparent, right? And like Predator is, you know, I think was sort of thought of as pulpy, you know, like perfectly well-reviewed, a big hit, was nominated for multiple Oscars, but I don't think it was thought of as being, I, people might have thought of it as like an action film classic or a genre classic or, you know, a potential classic for a particular genre at the time. But I feel like nowadays we just think of it as just a classic film, right? Like I'm actually kind of surprised that it's not on the AFI list considering what a good reputation this movie has. I agree with that. And I mean, this is one of the all time 100% approval rating movies, right? Like you don't even hear hot take artists say anything bad about Die Hard. Like we all agree that it's great. I was looking at Wikipedia a plus cinema score, which is somewhat rare. I don't know. Have you ever come across anyone with a with a bad thing to say about Die Hard? <laughs> Not yet, but uh, but I'm sure they're out there. I I mean, how could they be? <laughs> Who would that even be? What kind of person would you be? Yeah, this movie's kind of pretty much unimpeachable. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're peaking early. We uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about in this man's career. I think it would be pretty difficult for anyone to argue that this is i mean you may you know like i'm gonna argue hard for with a vengeance here in the next episode and some people have a very special place in their heart for the thomas crown affair maybe because of the an age they were at when they first saw it in 99 but (laughs) um declaring any film besides die hard as mctiernan's masterpiece is a pretty hard thing to be a pretty hard thing to defend it's a hard sell we'll we'll spend our time focusing on why Die Hard with a Vengeance is an underrated masterpiece. How's that sound? Agreed. Shall we move on to the hunt for Red October, Matt? Let's do it. All right. Based on the Tom Clancy book, this is the first Jack Ryan movie. The only Jack Ryan movie with Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan. And uh, we have Sean Connery as a uh, Russian submarine captain. We've got submarines full of Russians, right? Yeah, we do. Okay, so... These Russians are played by Sean Connery, who is Scottish, Sam Neill, who is Australian. New Zealand, isn't he? He might be Kiwi, yeah, sure, Aussie or Kiwi. Tim Curry, who is British. Yeah, he's Kiwi. Stellan Skarsgård, who is Swedish. Yeah. And uh, uh, this guy, Joss, Joss Ackland, probably most famous for being the South African diplomat in Lethal Weapon 2, you know, diplomatic community. He's playing um, like the Russian attache in this. So the question is, how (laughs) do we figure out a way for them to just speak in their native tongues, speak in English? This movie does one of the more clever things you'll ever see. But I was trying to look for it online. Did you find any sort of material about how they figured this out or whose idea this was? No, and I'm glad we're getting right to it because I do think it is a masterstroke sort of indicative of what an incredibly sophisticated and economic storyteller McTiernan is. Do you want do you want to explain what happened? Yeah, basically, you know, you have a lot of Russian characters in this movie despite the fact that they're played by all the different nationalities that I just uh rattled off. And so in lieu of having Connery, you know, speak Russian for the entire film and subtitling he and Sam Neill and they have a lot of very extensive conversations the film comes up with this brilliant shortcut 
and basically pushes in on the mouth of one of the actors while he's in the midst of uh, delivering a monologue. As it gets to a close-up of his mouth, importantly, on the word Armageddon, which is the exact same in Russian and in English. <laughs> God damn, so good. The dialogue switches over to English and they basically just speak in English with accents for the rest of the movie. The one exception being once the American crew gets to the Red October, then the Russian crew starts speaking Russian again. And that's important because then Alec Baldwin's Jack Ryan character actually has to translate and prove that he can speak Russian, and then Connery proves that he can speak English, and it's kind of this detente thing, right? Yes. But it's this beautiful, it's so simple. Like, when you, when you see it happen in real time, you're like, oh, of, of course. I mean, I pause, you know, like, I don't want to necessarily give McTiernan and the screenwriters all the credit for this. I can't imagine they're the first ones who ever came up with this technique, but goddamn is it effective in the context of this film, right? It's, it's, it's so kind of smart. a masterstroke. I, I wish I was in the room where when whoever came up with the idea came up with it because they must have just been so beside themselves with the genius of it, especially <laughs> the Armageddon line. Yeah. The other options, obviously, subtitles, and Sean Connery probably didn't want to speak Russian for this entire movie. Yeah. And but but most movies would have just had them speak in their in their native tongues, but that doesn't really work plot wise, right? So. Yeah, it, it makes this a much more enjoyable film <laughs> as a result. Did you watch Chernobyl? Did you watch the Chernobyl miniseries? Uh, I watched the first couple episodes and then sort of... Couldn't get into it? I liked it, but it's just, you know, it's kind of a slog. I've listened to a lot of interviews with Craig Mazin, the screenwriter and kind of showrunner on that. And he's talked about some of the controversy surrounding the fact that they chose to cast these Russian characters, mostly with British actors. The aforementioned Stellan Skarsgård being... The except one exception because he's obviously Swedish, but his idea, his thought was that he didn't want the entire series to be subtitled to be, to be Russian actors speaking in Russian and subtitled into English because ultimately this was you know a show that was produced by you know British television and HBO and he was afraid that if he cast a bunch of actors who would be speaking in a Russian accent in English throughout the entire thing it would just be a little too kind of Boris and Natasha it would be just um, distracting, right? So his compromise was to cast actors with, with British accents just to kind of like find a, a neutral zone accent-wise. Anyway, tangent. Back to Red October where we have Sean Connery, a Scotsman, playing a Russian. Actually, I think the, the film makes it clear that he's not Russian, right? Isn't he? Lith- they, they mention he's Lithuanian by birth. Yes, yes. And so that. that also sort of feeds into his intentions to defect because he's not actually he's not actually a company man in the russian sense and you know why i like this movie in terms of in the context of mctarian's career is that it really is sort of a divergence it's a, it's it's a new challenge higher degree of difficulty almost because okay he's done these action movies thrillers in sort of tight quarters and now he's going to have to make a thrilling movie action-packed movie if you will based on diplomatic concerns with multiple groups of people all miles leagues apart from each other and it's you know it's 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 a political like you said airport novel that you're gonna have to make exciting and you know what is this like a 600 700 page book i was gonna ask you if you had read it because you strike me as the kind of you know well-read gentleman who was probably dog-earing Tom Clancy novels in the 90s, right? I know for a fact that I read one of the Tom Clancy books, and I think the one I read was Clear and Present Danger. Okay. But I don't think I ever read Hunt for Red October. Not a big Tom Clancy guy. I mean, I think it's important to point out for 
perhaps some of our younger audience members that in the early 1990s, there was three novelists and their adaptations kind of came to define uh, popular cinema in that decade, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Between Tom Clancy tackling the political stuff, you know, the geopolitical, stuff, geopolitical, you know, more, you know, interested in the in, in the armed forces and in governments. John Grisham handling the legal stuff. Michael Crichton kind of handling, I, I guess, the science and medicine. Sure, their movies. There are probably fifteen movies between the three of them over the course of the nineties, right? Sure. Something like that. It's nuts. And Michael Crichton, you know, of course, wrote the book that the highest grossing film of the 90s was based on. The, Talk about the, the book Jurassic Park. That's a, that's the book I'm, I'm talking <laughs> about. But but also, you know, like throughout my teenage years, I was never at a beach in an airport or, you know, walking through one of my parents' friend's house where I didn't encounter multiple thick John Grisham novels. I mean, maybe people just had them sitting around because they thought it made them look smart. But those those John Grisham books, The Firm in particular, were just fucking ubiquitous. And, you know, I, I feel like if you were a Tom Clancy reader, it kind of made you look a little bit smarter than a John Grisham reader, right? Like I think I think in terms of the um in, in terms of the intellectual hierarchy, the Michael Crichton stuff was pretty accessible. The John Grisham stuff was pulpy, but it was like a little more cerebral. And then the Tom Clancy stuff, you had to, uh, I, I, I never read any of his books, but I got the impression you had to pay a little bit closer attention because he wasn't going to hold your hand as much. Yeah, I, I think in retrospect, it's probably the opposite. Oh, really? you think it's training. inverted? I think I think it's inverted, but, but, but I think you're right in terms of what the perception was at the time. I, I think maybe Crichton was held in a little more intellectual esteem than John Grisham, perhaps, just only because of his sort of high concept stuff, right? I mean, I'll just say this, that like as a teenager, I, I read a bunch of Michael Crichton books and uh, rarely did I feel like they were going too far over my head. Whereas yeah. I tried to get through the Grisham stuff and I just couldn't, I, and I didn't, I never even bothered with Clancy. Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a victim of uh, thinking that my 12 year old brain was smart, but I definitely read some Grisham books and I, you know, sort of grew out of those pretty quickly too. So, well, I think it's also significant that Clancy has now been working with ghostwriters for at least the last decade, right? I mean, Clancy still writes books and he, and he, you know, he, he writes templates for video games and stuff, but it's almost always Tom Clancy with, you know, uh, ghostwriter du jour. Matt, I got some bad news for you. Tom Clancy's dead? Tom Clancy died in 2013. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tom Clancy books do still come out with ghostwriters. I do know okay. that. Okay. Okay, so yeah. that's what so it is. It's like it's like the a Tom brand. a brand, yeah. exactly. So it's yeah, it's like Tom Clancy's Defcon 3 or whatever. Yeah, and before he died, there was a you know, a, a long decade of of that happening. And yeah, it was it's sort of the, the the Clive Cussler model, right? I actually read way more Clive Cussler books than any of these uh, any go. of the authors we've been talking about, so that probably uh, says says a lot about me. Um, <laughs> but the point is that like in the early '90s, Clancy would have already been a, a pretty big deal. But this movie was significant in that it brought a novel to the screen that a lot of people said was unfilmable up to this point. It just it just was too narratively complex. And uh, according to Bo, uh, McTiernan really embraced that challenge. According to Bo, McTiernan was instrumental in figuring out how to adapt this to the screen. He doesn't actually get a screenwriting credit on this film, but apparently this was a passion project for him for a long time. It makes sense. I mean, every every decision is very thoughtful and 
you know, it, it's easy to watch this movie and be like, oh, that was, you know, that was great and that was fun. I, I hate using this because I use it too much, but degree of difficulty wise, like this is this is up there. You know, making a movie in two different submarines, making that exciting when it's at heart a, a movie about diplomacy and sort of chess moves by different entities. To make that exciting and pop on screen, why it was considered unfilmable? Not just because of you know the the subject matter itself but because of just the the plot and how sort of uh boring it potentially could have been in uh, lesser hands yeah and once again mctiernan kind of disappears into the material i think he's making all of the right decisions i think this is a movie sort of defined by its its narrative and visual clarity which is saying a lot considering the subject matter you know considering the source material that it comes from there's just such a steady hand through this movie it's it's not a particularly sexy or exciting entry into his filmography it's not a movie you put on at parties or whatever and it's not even necessarily one of my favorite mctiernan movies but it is goddamn watchable it really, I think, has aged pretty darn well. I, I, you know, for a, a movie made in 1990, I don't think it carries too much of the baggage of when it was made. I mean, it's not explicit about the fact that it takes place in the early 80s, but from the research that I've done, there was a decision on the part of, of McTiernan and the producers to set it in the 80s when the book was actually written so that they could get ahead of the fall of um, the Soviet Union so that they still could put this squarely in the last years of the Cold War because that's obviously important for the story. I think the perfect encapsulation is this. My... I had a roommate that I lived with for a year, still a good friend of mine. This movie was his go-to hungover movie. Okay. I I 100% did that about three weeks ago. I 100% woke up on a Sunday morning. I was just like, ugh. I want something that I've seen many times <laughs> yeah. and that I could maybe, you know, kind of fall asleep in the middle of and come back to something that's kind of like pleasant and sort of low key. That's exactly right. And it sounds like a slight. It sounds it sounds like a, a bit of a backhanded compliment, but it's it's, it's a real it's thing. <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's a real thing. It's, it's pleasing to the eye, pleasing to the ear. You have good voices talking at you. You got good strategery, and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know the the action is not overwhelming. It's not you know for for the kind of movie that this is, it's not a bunch of people yelling at each other the whole time. You know, it's m- more hushed tones than screaming matches. There's a lot of great whispering in this movie because yeah. they make it they make it very very clear that these guys these guys have trained their ears, particularly Courtney B. Vance character. I mean, these guys can these guys can hear the difference between. What does he say? You know, whales humping and uh, and a seismic anomaly, you know, yeah. or the sound of the caterpillar. I mean, these guys, these guys are trained, have trained their ears to be able to make these kinds of sonic distinctions. This is a favorite movie of uh, ASMR enthusiasts. <laughs> That's fair enough. If it isn't, it's it's primed for rediscovery by the ASMR community. Jack Ryan as you know Alec Baldwin playing him. It would have been fun to see him continue on with the character and in, in Patriot Games and Clear Present Danger. Those would be two probably different movies, as much as I like Harrison Ford. But one of the things watching this movie is, uh, God damn, I miss Sean Connery, man. I really do. I think about that almost every day, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> How much I bemoan the fact that we never got, A, that he's not still making films, B, that we didn't maybe get a proper send-off for him. You've often cited The League of Extraordinary (laughs) Gentlemen not only as a terrible movie, but maybe one of the worst films you've ever seen. Yeah. And I guess that must have been uh, his 
thought as well, <laughs> considering that he was just like, fuck it, I'm done. If this is what I'm making now, then I'm done. It's uh, it's sad. Pointing out the great supporting cast. Everyone's a lot of fun, especially, uh, you know, Sam Neill, Scott Glenn, James Earl Jones, you know, who would reprise this character. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much more to say because this, you know, this movie's not all that important to me. It's not one of his very, very best films, but just a very clean, polished, pleasing thriller. Probably, almost certainly, uh, the best Tom Clancy adaptation out there. Okay, that's interesting. So you think that this is superior to Patriot Games, which I suppose would be the only other. I mean, with all due respect to Claire and Present Danger, which is a perfectly watchable movie. It's not a particularly memorable movie. Yeah, I like both those movies just fine. I don't think they've aged particularly well. Yeah, and John McTiernan, I think is I think he's a superior director to Philip Noyce. Or even to uh, the gentleman who made The Sum of All Fears and Feel the Dreams and Sneakers. Uh, he's got three. three Phil Alden Robinson. Phil, Phil Alden Robinson. Robinson. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Alec Baldwin was the first Jack Ryan and then Harrison Ford and then Ben Affleck. Chris Pine. Chris Pine. <laughs> and, now and now John Krasinski. John Krasinski. Yeah, yeah, interesting. It's a bit of a rite of passage, this role, isn't it? I mean, it is sort of like a default agent, right? And if anyone wants to play some sort of agent in a political thriller, this is an easy property to get made, I suppose. Sure. It is kind of interesting, though, they keep making these movies, because I'm not sure any young people really give a shit about Tom Clancy or Jack Ryan at this point. But I don't know. Did you watch any of the Amazon series? My, my brother said it was... No, I've, and, I, and I honestly didn't see the Chris Pine film either. Didn't, uh, didn't Kenneth Branagh direct that movie? Yeah, Kevin Costner was in it too. Kevin right? Costner, yeah. It's, it's isn't it just called like Jack Ryan Book of Secrets or something? <laughs> Jack Ryan Chamber of Secrets. Isn't I don't it know. called Jack Ryan Colon something? Uh, it might be. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't seen it either. So yeah, you, you're, you've convinced me. Yeah, this is far and away the best Jack Ryan movie. This is far and away the best Clancy adaptation. Shadow Recruit. It's it's called Jack Ryan Colon Shadow Recruit, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Guess who one of the screenwriters is Matt? Uh, McQuarrie. David Kep. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think The Hunter for Red October has aged really, really well. I think it's a, I think it's a lovely, elegant film. Feels big. It feel, you know, you feel the breadth of the Atlantic Ocean. You feel the weight of those submarines. And uh, you know, when they're out there, when fucking Alec Baldwin's hanging out of a helicopter out there in the middle of the ocean, it feels dangerous. It feels yeah. real. Bo told me an interesting story about that because one of the most memorable, effective kind of bravura sequences in the film that was shot in Puget Sound. Much of the nautical stuff in this was shot in in and around Puget Sound and the Strait of Juan de Fuca, actually, Makes sense. Uh, around the San Juans. He said that uh, they chose that location because obviously you and I, coming from the Pacific Northwest, know this. Uh, that part of the world is very, very gray and very wet and very glum much of the year i would call it majestic but (laughs) so i still live here and you don't i suppose in 1989 or whenever they were shooting this turned out to be unseasonably warm and sunny so it took them much longer to shoot that stuff than they expected and to the credit of the united states navy they just let them hang on to all those submarines and all those aircraft carriers and all those brothers like yeah We'll just we'll just wait. We'll just wait until the weather looks right. So I mean I think that's why, you know, McTiernan, who'd been on a pretty good one movie per year run, Nomads in eighty six, Predator in eighty seven, Die Hard in eighty eight. And maybe that's why he's got this two year gap between Die Hard and the Hunt for Red October, because they had to wait for the weather to be right. And so what Bo told me was that when they were shooting that sequence where um, Alec Baldwin's hanging down out of the helicopter, they basically surrounded that submarine with a bunch of boats 
which were basically just blasting fog. They were trying to make it so that you couldn't see too far past. You know, you, you couldn't see too far into the distance because then you might start to see the San Juan Islands or you might start to see, you know, Seattle in the distance yeah, yeah. or something. So they're blasting all this fog into the periphery. And then the fact that there's so many boats swirling around the submarine, it's also causing the water to get real choppy. And that's why they managed to, they, they really sell the fact that this is occurring during a storm, right? Yeah. And then they obviously add some lightning and stuff later, you know, optically. But yeah, I think they really, really sell that moment. And it's a particularly harrowing sequence. It, and, and Baldwin apparently, you know, did most of those stunts himself, which is kind of impressive. But there's just, I don't know, there's just kind of like a weight to this movie. Like when you see Sean Connery standing, you know, at the top of one of these submarines, it feels like he's standing on the top of one of these submarines, as opposed to nowadays when he'd be standing against a green screen. Yeah, no, there's, there's a gravitas and there's you know the one scene at the end which feels it's a little very, hokey yeah hokey and green screen that's the one moment that stands out but. and it really draws attention to itself because everything up until then has felt pretty damn grounded i mean even the miniature work of which there is a lot they sell it pretty damn well like a lot of that uh, submarine exterior stuff miniatures on a stage basically surrounded by um you know smoke and fog and atmosphere these submarine models are attached to all sorts of different like gimbals and wires and stuff and they're overcranking the camera and then they add little like particulates and stuff in optically later on but i think all that miniature stuff holds up still looks pretty good still sells for me i uh 100 agree that's why i really enjoy this movie it has endured far more so than the harrison ford ones and just in terms of the baggage the political baggage that clancy often brings to some of some of his work mctiernan and the producers of this film it, w- it was their intention and their strategy to downplay the politics of the story and really emphasize the, th- the thriller aspects of it all yeah that was important to them and i think they were I think they were successful. There's a really nice sort of cat and mouse component to the submarine scenes in this that I feel that Tony Scott kind of appropriated and then kind of embellished on in Crimson Tide, which I think is actually quite an underrated submarine movie. I don't know about Superior, but I think it's a really fun movie, and I think it actually owes a lot to this one. Yeah, I mean, the politics are definitely simplified, but it, it works and the motivations are there, and you know, you don't really question it. So, Matt, we've been talking for a good... Uh hour and 40 minutes should we should we wrap this sucker up i guess we should i mean i'd say let's get right into medicine man right now but i I need to go back and and call bo up again and uh, get him to spill his guts about that because there's a lot going on with that medicine man i just watched it again last night for the first time in many many years probably over a decade and i am chomping at the bit to talk about it i'll have to wait till the next episode to get into that next mctiernan episode matt medicine man last action hero die hard with a vengeance and the thomas crown affair it's gonna be a lot to chew on there honestly it's the episode in the series i'm most looking forward to because i really feel like predator Die Hard, Hunt for October. I mean, this is shooting fish in a barrel, right? I mean, this this stuff's easy. This is well-trod territory. I think we've been incisive here, but I mean, there's nothing controversial about these movies, whereas we can actually potentially light up some hot takes about these next four films. Oh, I'm getting my hot takes ready. They're in the oven right now. (laughs) Until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Oeuvre, John McTiernan, number one. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye.